Lights, camera, action. Hello and welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron, joined as always by Keenan Bonner, and the matchup we'll be getting into this week is 2015 Sicario versus 2001's Blow, the cocaine derby, if you will. Keenan, how is it going today? Yeah, not so bad, mate. You? Not too bad. Of course, we had Movie Madness 150 last week. Um, made up for the lack of spitballing pod that week. So hopefully anyone that has listened has enjoyed not one, but three episodes that we released. And I've not had any complaints about any of my comments during American Pie 2. So I do think we're in the clear there. And I think you're in the clear there too, Keenan, as I, of course, did attribute the comments um, to you on an admin basis. Yeah, I didn't like that. wasn't a fun. Um Oh, I think we'll be okay. You've all for worse. one, one for all, all that kind of business. Oh no, I'd I'd sell you for a five pence piece. Oh, there's no need for that. I did actually get a message to say that people did think you were a bit nasty to me, so um, maybe something to bear in mind for this week. I I I struggle to believe that. Just one, but you know that still counts. But anyway, would you, would you care to tell me from whom? Um, I'll tell you after. Uh, the same person that messaged you about the American Pie podcast, so. May narrow yeah. it down. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Let's straight, jump straight in. We do have some news of the week this week. And uh, <laughs> in line with those comments, we are going to start uh, where we left off. Anna Diarmas is disgusted that her Marilyn Monroe nude scenes will go viral. Yeah, I, I thought you might. I, I was. I honestly am surprised that you haven't texted me out of excitement that this was going to be a thing. <laughs> I'm waiting for the release. Um, <laughs> look, she may be right to be disgusted. I can tell her she is absolutely correct, and they most definitely will be going viral. Oh right, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's just obvious, isn't it? I feel like. And we'll say it again. Don't want to sound too piggish. I feel like she has to have known that when she signed up for the film. It's like if Margot Robbie signed up to do this film, those same scenes would be going viral. I feel any A-list actress in these shoes, if you aren't used to seeing them in there, I mean, people, mm. people still share around those Margot Robbie pictures from Wolf of Wall Street as yeah. a beacon of like perfection. And so I'm sure Anna Diarmas is going to be in a similar boat. You would imagine so. I did see one of the early reviews from America and they were essentially complaining that she was naked too much in the film. And I feel like that could be some of the best publicity that this film has had <laughs> the whole way through. There's now a male audience that is attracted to this film that might not have been, might not have been that interested in a Marilyn Monroe biopic. But then at the same time, uh, one of the complaints that Euphoria gets from some, not complaints from me, um, is that there's too much nudity in there. They say sometimes there's just someone, it's like they'll just have their top down for no reason. I feel like Marilyn Monroe, from what we know of her, 
and I can't profess to be an expert, but isn't is the whole thing not that she was objectified because of her body in a time when the idealistic female body was far skinnier and all of these things she was something different at least from her level of publicity and she was essentially just lusted after by men everywhere and so it does feel like that was always going to be one of the focuses of this film probably and uh for the purpose of the podcast i will give it a watch so uh, i'll report back <laughs> the following thursday just to confirm uh, how it is the dedication the dedication you've got eh? exactly um if only you had the same and would watch um, piranha with uh, kelly brook i'm not watching fucking piranha stop just we'll, pack it in we'll continue with the same film anna diarmas says she visited marilyn monroe's grave to ask permission for blonde Think it was a long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate Hollywood sometimes, man. Don't do it. Uh, I just. What do you mean? I asked for fucking permission. What's she expecting? Like a voice a, from beyond the grave going, yeah. We need a third Margot Robbie, but we'll take you. A, tr- a tree to start rusting or something. <laughs> what the fuck do you mean? Just. Look, someone's paying you an awful lot of money. Just go well, and do the film. Yeah, one of the directors claimed that several of them asked permission. Like. If Marilyn Monroe really was talking about, well, at the fourth person, she's going, we've done this already. Just leave me in oh, peace. Oh, mate. Fucking pack it in, will you? Oh, just turn it in. What do you mean multiple <laughs> people went and asked their permission? All right, I'm sorry. Any chance we can make this film where the actress got to get a kit off for 45 minutes? And what did she say? She didn't say no. Well, evidently not. <laughs> like, what what they expect? What, like, what do you take as a no? It's not like... <laughs> um... George Clooney has joked that he was the best Batman. He says Ben Affleck's got nothing on me. His actual uh, his actual rundown of his performance, but in uh, Batman and Robin is fucking mint. By the way, <laughs> he's just like a shit, <laughs> and then he's just like, but I don't mean that. He's just he's like yeah, he's shit, and then he's just like I mean by that like I'm shit in it. It's a shit film. It's really, but it's really bad. He basically he's got like a nice interview where he fully just tears into it, but most of it's just focused on tearing into himself. He's being hard on himself. Um, we're obviously well aware. If you go back and listen to Movie Madness one hundred, uh, just what a masterpiece that film is. So uh, hopefully George eventually does realise that as well. I'm not sure if you can hear my laptop fan. By the way, there's sheer mention of Clooney's Batman, and it's just going berserk. Yeah, okay, you can hear it a little. Not what I wanted to hear. Turn me down a little bit. Uh, still loud enough? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Timothy, Sh- Timothy Chalamet has shared Leonardo DiCaprio's career advice. No hard drugs and no superhero movies. I mean, that's pretty spot on, isn't it? <laughs> it served him well. Yeah, And, and nice. no over 25s. Yeah, I don't know if he's dropping over. He does, he don't, he's not trying to ruin that well for anyone else, is he? I love the idea that the pressure has got to him because he is seemingly um, with a 26-year-old now, uh, Gigi Hadid. But with the way the comments are, you would think he's really having to like settle. He's just yeah. having to settle for another Victoria's Secret model. Yeah, I did see that. People are like, oh, like, but like Jamie, like, oh look, he's you know, he's changing. I'm like, no, he's just he's, he's gone out of another supermodel. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, he's Leonardo DiCaprio. Let him do what he wants. Yeah. Um, 
Matt Damon has confirmed that in the early 90s, there were a class of young male rising stars competing for all the same roles who would all collectively say, ah, shit, when Ethan Hawke was in the reception room. Would you have thought he was that guy? No. No, I would not. And yet, there we go. And then Ethan Hawke... Have you seen... um, Sorry. Have you seen the pictures of his and Uma Thurman's baby? I have, yeah. It's Maya Hawke, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Like, as genetic copies go, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think that's probably the closest to a 50-50 split I've ever seen. Well, that's essentially like how you were taught when you were kids, isn't it? It's like you get yeah. half of your mum and half of your dad, and yeah, that's what yeah. you get. And yeah, they took that literally. That is, It's as close to a 50-50 split as I've ever seen. Fair play to her as well. Um, I saw someone say, you know, not enough people bring up that Ethan Hawke cheated on Numa Thurman with the nanny and someone else in their replies. Well, yeah, weirdly, for every single person, you don't just refer to, to the one awful thing they've done. Like maybe Ethan Hawke's done far more, but mm. I think when you've done training day, it kind of offsets it. No comment. But yes, there there, there are certain, there are certain points where you don't just have to bring up the something bad that someone's done because they're referenced in a conversation. And I feel like there are far shittier people in Hollywood that yep. this probably you get a bit of a pass for this one. Yeah, like look, it's not great. I'm not I'm not advocating not cheating on your missus or anything, but look, it's two consenting adults. You do what you do. There we go. Um, and Ethan Hawke's done an interview recently as well. I think this was maybe brought to his attention and he said he felt the same way about Ewan McGregor. So I could have seen him being that guy at a, at a certain time. He said he did what he thought was the best audition of his career for Moulin Rouge. Mm. And he was almost just convinced, well, I've got that part. And then the next thing he knew, it had gone to Ewan McGregor. And he said... He was a fan of his work already, and he said, you can tell that, but I went on the opening day to see how this went, and he said, I came out and I loved the film. I thought, you know, fair play. I can I can see why, why they picked him. <laughs> but he did say, one day that audition tape's going to come out, and he said to McGregor, I think people may start asking some questions about who could have done a better job, but they've just teamed up on a film together, so I think they're just reliving the glory days. Have they? Yeah, I couldn't tell you what it's called, though. Nice. It's not, not, not the start of a nice little cast, isn't it? Yeah, and oh, I'm going to forget one of the names now. Ashton Kutcher is now doing a film with Reese Witherspoon, or maybe they were just being interviewed together. And they were both asked if you could kind of cast your ideal partner for a rom-com, who would it be? And Ashton Kutcher says, Reese Witherspoon, and she's doing, I won't do an impression of her, but you can Mm. imagine her voice. Oh, Ashton, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. That's so nice of you to say that. And then she says Tom Hanks. So did not return the (laughs) favour. Whether she sounds out as a joke or serious, I've got got a lot of time for it. (laughs) A Reese Witherspoon, Tom Hanks rom-com. I think is probably 20 years past being a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I think she, the question was kind of if you could have cast yeah, your like all, all the time. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But keep rom in mind, is, uh, as we say, that may be the next bracket. Mm. 
Well, mate, early 2000s Tom Hanks has got some bangers in the department. Yep, yep. And Reese Witherspoon is one of them who I am just convinced has just been playing herself like her entire career and it just so happens that that's fit into plenty of characters. But anyway, enough of the news of the week. We've got far darker things to get into. Let's get into Sicario. You're not American. Who do you work for now? I go where I'm set. Get your weapon out. He looks for anyone who will turn him loose. Don't ever point a weapon at me again. Sicario, rated R, starts everywhere October 2nd. There we go. An idealistic FBI agent is enlisted by a government task force to aid in the escalating war against drugs at the border area between the US and Mexico. Keenan, this was my second time watching this. Your second time watching it? Yeah, maybe third. Okay. I've definitely seen it before. What do you think the critics thought of this? Seven out of ten. Sicario is a searing and provocative thriller, visceral and unflinching in its depiction of a situation with no easy answer. The film's message is troubling because it is often true. The longer we cling to our morals, the more susceptible we are to becoming sheep in a land of wolves. What a depressing <laughs> review. Mm. One of the most brutal, effective thrillers in recent memory. A thriller wound so tight that you'll probably need a lie down and a sizable drink afterwards. Did you need one on a work night? No. Sicario looks to be introducing even wider audiences to Dennis Villeneuve, but it's also a film that will leave them uneasy and unsettled. Have I pronounced his name right there? You're usually the man to tell me if I have or not. I have no idea, mate, to be honest with you. Okay, we are getting into another one of his films next week, by the way, in Prisoners. Nice. Um, So I thought that was quite a good place to start, actually, because his catalogue from the early 2010s, he goes from Prisoners to Sicario to Arrival with Amy Adams, if you've seen that. No, I haven't. Okay, Blade Runner 2049, now June and June Part 2. So big budgets, big successes. He's basically just been smashing it since he got given to prisoners in 2013. Nice. Yeah, it's nice to run that. I've not seen June either, to be fair. I think I've only seen one film on that list. Arrival, um, it's, it's similar to Prisoners and Sicario, basically, where they take what's quite, not an overdone, but quite a commonly done theme in that child kidnapped need to get child back Mexican drug cartel and this one is what if aliens came down basically but it's one of these where he puts his twists on it to try and make you maybe ask questions that you haven't asked before yeah and so in Sicario they do it where and we'll speak about the finale a bit later on but you kind of come out of it asking okay, could this ever be stopped? And you ask, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And I think something like uh, the character of Alejandro, where this film kind of 
just deconstructs the whole man on a revenge mission against the people who killed his family and I guess similar in prisoners narrative that you usually get in films where in reality this guy that we see in so many films wouldn't be an action hero he probably would be a vicious psychopath that has had kind of all humanity stripped away from him and it's just him taking an original take arrival is when they come down how are we going to communicate with them how are we going to work out the languages would america and china and russia all work together and so you get all these different things but clearly since from 2013 onwards he's been trusted with these big parts because i mean june i mean you can only imagine the size of the budget on there and what's he getting three of them Something I thought was interesting is Sicario was written by Taylor Sheridan, who also did Hello High Water. Okay. And I don't know if you've watched Sons of Anarchy. I've not seen it personally. I have. Okay, so Taylor Sheridan plays Chief Hale in Sons of Anarchy, if that means anything to you. It does. Um, but he was paid really poorly, and he tried bringing this up. Uh, they objected to him bringing that up, and he was told that's what he's worth that's what he's always going to be worth. And they killed his character off almost immediately after this meeting happened. Yeah, nice. He took that as a, not to go full Drake here, like success is the best revenge. Yeah. And so he spent his time off and he writes Sicario and Hell or High Water. That is close to batting a thousand to be fair. Yeah, they get nominated for like every award. Mm-hmm. And now he's behind the success of Yellowstone and the sequel to that. Okay. So he's just been smashing it ever since, and it's one of those where the best thing that's possibly happened to him was what at the time was the worst thing that could have happened to him. And yeah, clearly, um, he was very he was far more productive than when I found out I was losing my job. I can confirm that. Mm-hmm. I also saw that uh, Villain Wave is directing a TV series called The Sun with Jake Gyllenhaal coming up. Um, a convict escapes prison to find the truth about his father's alleged suicide and track down those involved in a major criminal conspiracy. Okay. I do think Jake Gyllenhaal probably is equipped well for TV. When you look at something like yeah. Nightcrawler, I can see him doing the kind of gradual descent really well. And I know nothing about this TV show other than the synopsis, but I think if you could give him like one of these HBO miniseries, I think he'd be great. Yeah, I think he. I think he. Excuse me. I think he could do do a very good job. And then he's also um, directing something called Rendezvous with Rama. So the team of astronauts is sent on a mission to explore a giant interstellar spaceship hurtling towards the sun, which I imagine there'll be some kind of uh, take on that that he's doing again. Yeah. Um, not much with the casting what ifs for this it seems that they basically got who they wanted the only one they had some trouble with and not to bring back some bad memories for you here was josh brolin who turned it down because he'd literally just finished filming everest Mm. and he said that was kind of a brutal ride to go through yeah and in the end the i believe it was the cinematographer who contacted him directly to say, I really want you to reconsider and do this. And that was so out of character for Deakins that it spun him around and he jumps on board to do this film. And it's one of them where it feels like the character has been written for him. So yeah. Yeah. It's it's picture perfect. Yeah. I was reading something from someone today online and they were saying that they basically went to try and go and see Everest 
and it was sold out. And the guy behind the till said, well, why don't you go see Sicario instead? That's Josh Brolin too. And not a bad switch to make. No. No, not 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 too bad at all. Also a hell of a month at a box office for him. Yeah, he's had, he's had a couple of good runs. Yeah. Just puts out good stuff. So if we could start with, and there's no real way of doing this film without having some crossover, so I'll try not to make this too jumbled, but if we can start with Benicio Del Toro, the character of Alejandro, mm-hmm. who really is a scene stealer the whole way through this. He's one of those where you would see reviews and they would describe them as like magnetic yeah. when they're on screen. And I think he's so good in this. And I was going to ask your take. So his character is frequently silent in this film. Yeah. He initially had so many more lines. They say in the initial script, the character explained his background several times to Kate. And this is Del Toro explaining this. He said, yeah, and that gave me information about who this guy was and it helped me in building the character, but it felt a little stiff to have someone you met 15 minutes ago suddenly telling you their entire life story and what made them who he is. Yeah. So he sat down with the director and just began cutting the dialogue to preserve the mystery of who the character was. And they say by the end of it, they'd cut about 90% of what he was originally intended to say. It's a great way for them. Yeah, he says... Between him and the director, they saw the power in stripping the character down to a brooding silence, stating that dialogue belongs to plays and movies are about movement, character and presence. And he felt that he was able to deliver all of that. I mean, he's, he's signed the contract and he's managed to make his days far easier. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's great work. But then it's even harder, I guess, to deliver a good performance when you, you've got less to work with. Like, he manages to steal the show in this and we'll speak about Emily Blunt and maybe why that was intentional but to do that with the lack of dialogue even when you put his character next to Josh Brolin who's so in your face Mm. it's very impressive that he's able to do what he does yeah I I understand that but the silence has to be given to him to work do you know what I mean and that the film does do that so when they strip away the dialogue obviously they're not just taking away his dialogue, they've obviously got they've got to move something else in or they've got to take away from the other yes. characters and they do give him the moment as like camera pans to him X amount of times, doesn't it? And it's just like it's just him and that dark like that's that stone look on his face. So yeah. they do allow him the director does then give him the room to work with, which is important. That could frustrate us though as an audience, or you could blend into the background like because yeah. with the other guys on screen it could be that okay, maybe when we're not being forced to, we still aren't drawn to you, but I think it's probably from his body of work already, but he does have that presence, doesn't he, that when he's on screen, you that really are able to f- feel this character. It probably does play 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 into it a lot, mate, but also the blending into the background, I think they give him enough screen time that that doesn't, it just isn't a thing. He's there for almost all important moments, isn't he? Do you think we would, be able to have the same level of intrigue for him if he did just, and I guess the moment would have been in that initial meeting that they have when they go over Mm. to Mexico and she says, like, who are you? What do you work for? Who do you work for? Yeah. And he kind of just brushes it off. 
Do you think we'd have the same feeling towards that character if he sat down in that moment and said, well, two years ago I was here and they chucked my daughter in this vat of acid and this happened? Or does it well, no. reel us in more with how they do do it? No, the in- if you know if you know everything that there is to know, it's very hard to, to have a level of intrigue, isn't it? And is part of his character is that we don't, initially know why we have the feeling towards him and I think it could become a completely different film if we feel that we are then in like a vigilante revenge mission film which we don't know about until the end maybe the film anytime we then have Emily Blunt on screen we'd probably be thinking we don't care about you get him on screen we want to see him go and take out these bastards that killed his family yeah and so from depriving us of that you're able to have the two storylines in tandem. We know he has something that he needs to get done, but we don't know what. And then we also have her kind of internal struggle playing simultaneously. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I, I think the whole what the what the oh, it's a terribly simplistic thing, but what do the good guys have to do to beat the bad guys? His his silence and he's almost working between the lines and context of the film and the shots does play into that part of it as well. I think um, he really was just cooking this whole time. Like his meetings with the director must have been fantastic. Um, Alejandro was initially only going to murder Alcarson in front of his wife and kids. Mm. He suggested that it was later changed to him killing the family in front of him at the dinner table. Nice. I think there's more. It's a little bit more fitting than it is as a revenge plotline. Like a direct eye for an eye sometimes does. It just works a little bit better, doesn't it? Yeah, and this this feels like I'm saying it in a disappointed sense, but even in the baddest of, uh, not the baddest of bad films, but the roughest of rough films, it's very rare that you will see a child die on camera. Even you'll kids very rarely see a body. You're, yeah, they don't, they don't want to do that. It's usually implied. And so for yeah. this one, it it delivers a hundred times more impact than it ever could have done with him shooting him across the table and yes. then the screams in the background. Yeah, one absolutely. Yeah, it's well, it's the one we compare it to, and I'm not comparing the two entities, but it's like shooting a dog on screen that everyone goes to get yeah. upset. There's yeah. more shock to it. Actually, I think people probably can play more at that way. <laughs> Possibly. A big thing with this film is the music. Mm. and this score was composed by Johan Johansson, which is a fantastic name. And the direction that he was given by Villeneuve, he said he wanted the sound of a threat. He used Jaws as a reference point and said that's what he wanted to create. And the soundtrack that we get for the border crossing scene, that soundtrack now... If, I think if you watch it for the first time now, you would think, okay, they're kind of using the same soundtrack that we've got plenty more times in the last uh, seven years. But this is where it started. This is where that soundtrack of the kind of dread, this is this is the first time that was used and it's used so well with how uncomfortable it makes you with the sound of the helicopter just pounding through that soundtrack 
the whole way through, they nail it. But in that scene in particular for the border crossing, I do think it, it's borderline perfection. They used it in the trailer yeah. and I think they knew what they had because it, it's just so good. Yeah. Jaws, uh, you saying Jaws as a reference point makes complete sense really when you think about it, doesn't it? Yeah. There's a lot of that, almost that base. And short, if sharp could, notes. If we could just speak about that that scene briefly. So that... It was very complicated for them to do. In the end, it took so long to shoot that a full-scale replica of the Suarez border was built. Um, they say shooting at the real location would have required days of road closures and yeah. it just wouldn't have been practical for them to be able to do it. Yeah. So I think even when they were storyboarding, they must have known how important this scene was in terms of getting it right. And then... They're, they're, they're venturing into this part of the continent in which the drug lords have just become so prominent that you you see these dead bodies hanging in public um, with the messages around them. It felt, you know, you get it on Call of Duty sometimes, and I say this as someone that only plays the campaigns, where you're basically put in the back of a truck and yeah. there's nothing you can do. You can't skip this scene. All you can do is kind of tilt your controller left and right and just look at whatever yeah. horrible things are going on. And that's what this feels like. It's slow enough that you really do take in the surroundings. It's atmospheric with the soundtrack still pounding through for you to take everything in. And even just someone crossing the street then feels like, why are you doing that? And you've just got this moment where I think they see a gun for the first time they're stuck in traffic and this is really when the sense of dread is just built to like a crescendo. Yeah. The cars around them, you can see them closing in with the drug traffickers, uh, kind of henchmen waiting to strike. They use these car windows so well in terms of the reflections, in terms of you only being able to see kind of like the tip of the gun because you're looking at it from the level of the car window. Um, and the way it's just cut together with flicking between the cars, just you're just waiting, you're getting antsy, just waiting for someone to pounce. I actually think one of the few issues I have with this film is that this sequence is never topped for the whole rest of the film. Um, and when you have this much intensity to start the film off, you kind of wait for them to build on it. And I think it was almost an impossible mission to do that. If I tell you I have a figure here for how much seconds of actual action are in this scene at the crossing, what what would you say? Uh, 57. Nine seconds of actual action in this whole thing. Yeah. Yet, it, in recent memory, it's one of the most thrilling engaging scenes that I can remember seeing. And I yeah. knew it was good from the first time I watched it, but watching it again, it just hit differently. And I don't know, when I saw that put out in front of me, I had to go and check it for myself. And it's just crazy that you can build up to that and you still don't feel like you've been undersold. you got the moment of getting out of the car, they take out the one car, they take out the second car, and then Emily Blunt sees behind... She sees the reflection of the corrupt policeman in behind who she has to take out. It's yeah. crazy that you're able to pack all that in. And you learn so much about each character in that moment as well. 
you've got Alejandro telling her to get out of the car, which she's reluctant to do. Then you see her quivering in where everyone else is so well organised and they're reluctant to take action, but they do so unwaveringly. And it's her reaction after of just disgust that this has been allowed to happen. But just all of this packed in with that soundtrack still just erring. So good. I think when we do scene by scene in the next round of the bracket, this is going to be in the conversation if it's not there right at the end. Um, yeah, fair point. It is a very, very good scene. And the pace of it as well, again, like Joe, they lend something to a gunfight, doesn't it? Because they're not, everyone's creeping around the cars yeah. and around, and you can see as the camera moves, like people in the cars looking scared and stuff. And it is, it is very, very well done. Well, it, they, it feels like um, we almost feel the same as them watching it, especially um, the first car worth of um, the henchmen. I don't really know a better or cartel members, or whatever you want to say. Yeah. And you can see them almost rocking. And it's almost like you are when you can feel like you're like screwing your hands up. Like you're waiting. You know it's going to pop off and you're just waiting for it to happen. And you're getting fidgety along with them. And I don't know. It's like the most intense game of musical chairs ever, mm. where you know at some point the music is going to be stopped. Yeah. And someone's got a fall. And when it goes past that point of where, okay, it's usually stopped by now. And they get it just just in that sweet spot. It's been a slightly too long to make you uncomfortable. And then bam, it all just pops off. Yeah. They don't I don't don't think in terms of slightly too long, I don't think they really waste a second like you obviously not in the action, but in terms of like no. an actual scene, I don't think they really waste a second at all, do they? It's quick. It, it's somehow quick and slow. Like, obviously, everyone's moving at such a slow pace, but the way it's shot, like you say, it does feel frantic and, like, it's about to go and about to go and about to go. Even in the moment where they drive past the bodies that are hanging from that bridge, I feel like they intentionally don't keep the camera on there as long as you would maybe be used to because they're almost saying, "This this is every day. This is, get used to this. Like, this isn't something that's that unusual yeah. that we need to hang around on this. And you've got that irritating guy in the driver's seat. Like, they're so good, man. They're so good. Yeah. They do this. Just you think they must have done something bad and you're feeling the same as them in the back. Just shut up. Just stop talking. And he yeah. keeps going and he's winding you up along with everything else. I do think in terms of the cards, a lot of what they try to do is to play it down. Like this. It's grand violence, some of it, but it's not ever like a grand standard, is it? It's No. But it's, it's done, like you say, just to show that this is that's the life life that they lead and the life that they're into. Yeah, I, Emily Blunt. We see her come into it, obviously, more and more as the film goes on. But she started filming this four months after she delivered her daughter Hazel. Yeah, and I know that right once they were in the peak of the film, she suffered with a horrible batch of food poisoning as well, where. If we're going to say it's not all glamour, I think she was basically told, we don't have these locations for long. And so they would just put her on an IV between shots. And they would just wheel her back out and say, come on, we've got got to get through this. And I think it really contributes as it goes on when she's looking more and more and more helpless. She's looking drained and she probably, she's looking after a baby and going through food poisoning. She probably is shattered. Yeah. Food poisoning. It's not no fun, joke. No, it's not 
Um, something else before I forget. When they're going through the tunnel at the end and she hits her head on the top of the tunnel, I thought, do you think that was real? Do you think they kept that in? And it is, uh, the director said, it just added a bit of realness and she <laughs> takes her helmet off to rub her head, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, the opening scene in where we always say, for the films that we rate highly on this bracket, that opening scene, they tell us exactly what we're in for. And they show you both sides of what you're being drawn into here with Sicario. You get the two sides of this violent world. The one that's like a discovery that's hidden beneath the surface and the one that's an explosion. It's bang, right in your face. And it just sets the stage for everything that you're going to get in the next hour and 50 minutes. You've got the evil existing in plain sight. You've got the evil hiding beneath all of it. And I don't know. It reminded me a bit. There's that scene in End of Watch, isn't there, where they uncover the house with the... There's some of them that are alive and there's some bodies in there as well. And it felt a lot like that. And I guess that's a cartel film as well, but almost you you just feel like you're almost... I'm just screwing my face up as I'm kind of retelling it, but you just feel that uncomfortableness, don't you, as you realise along with them what they've just uncovered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is played out well. And then even the explosion at the end is it, like... It is a, is, a, is a good touch. Yeah, and if we're saying about being in your face, I don't know if maybe there was a better way for them to enter the house than ju- them just drive their truck through the wall of this home. Yeah, I get you. Um, um, but it, it, is, takes... it is better than it is better than like a knock at the door and it was someone even, <laughs> even yeah. someone trying to kick the door in, like just fully sending it is just the way to do it. Yeah, and then she gets the guy who tries to take her out with the shotgun before he gets there. Mm. Um, moving like me on Call of Duty, actually. I keep seeing clips of people playing it online and I understand how I don't ever do that. Because by the time people have killed about six people, I'm still trying to line up my first guy perfectly. So that's a, that's a side comment. Um, but the shotgun blasts a hole in the wall dead body wrapped in plastic and then you kind of see this cadaver's not alone and they pan out of the house don't they and then they come back and you've just got this like corridor of horrors with about eight bodies lined up down the left hand well both sides of the walls mental and it does show you uh, what they're up against yeah it does yeah and it does a very good job of of because then it moves to the next scene where they sort of talk about it and it gives another another great very good explanation as well. Yeah, we we both said actually that we forgot Daniel Kaluuya was in this. Mm, yeah. And from just reading reviews, I mean he wasn't going to win awards for this, but this was one where I think people started to take him a bit more seriously if they if they weren't before. Just I mean it's obviously a massive film to him to be in and he played far more of a significant role. Because when I text you saying, I forgot he was in this, and I think I text you again saying, okay, just realised why. And I thought when the explosion went up that he was going to be part of it, and that was why I'd forgotten it because he was only in about two minutes. But no, he plays quite a big role the whole way through this, in certainly in comparison to what I expected. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I get you. Like I said, I was just actually wasn't sure on it at all until you yeah. said... 
Um, which it, when you look back on it is wild. Well, he he's in there really is the only foil for Josh Brolin. He's the only guy that stands up to his character, Matt, who's in there as this kind of professionally undefined agent. We aren't too sure where he's from. And he's the kind of guy that, I mean, you get a character like this in all these films, don't you? The guy who's like, look, we can't play it by the book. You don't get things done if you play it by the book. Everyone accepts that this is what I have to do. We turn a blind eye and we get things done. But I don't know if if it makes sense to play, say he plays it in a far more realistic way. He's almost bending the rules, but it just feels a bit more real than it being as in your face yeah. as what we would maybe see in some other films. He does it as low-key as possible. It's almost uh, the embodiment of what you don't know can't hurt you. Yes, yeah, it is, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's like I say, it's, it does. It, it just goes. It just shows again and again that what this film's for. Like it, it's a strange one with this. Like we, you talk about it, and if you sit and watch it to watch it, you can pick out like we're doing now all these wonderful things about the storyline, the action, the scene, and then it, it amazes me as we're doing it that it comes back and people are just like, eh, it's okay. Yeah, there seems to be thought like I'm sure there is in but like there seems to be thought that goes into every action uh, here. I've got a section for us on the criticism of the film and I think mm. we can maybe unpick why some are left feeling like that okay no that's fine I will say Matt or Josh Brolin's interview technique I think leaves a bit to be desired I actually watched it on the day that I had to do the kind of annual diversity training at work mm-hmm. Him going straight in with, you got any kids? You, you fancy having any kids? You're married? Yeah. No, HR, but... that wouldn't fly. Uh, I mean, outside of you fancy kids, because it's weird to be offering, asking people stuff like that, but the normal stuff, you'd probably be okay. You can't You can't even ask in an interview. If someone mentions they have kids, you can't even ask how old they are. Really? Because it... God. I'm off the I'm off the clock here. It can go in with um, unconscious bias, and if the person doesn't get the job, they can basically say, "Oh, it's because I said I have young kids." You might think I'm unreliable. You might think I'm going to be off because I have to look after kids and all of these kind of things. Mm. So Josh Brolin, I mean, HR, they they wouldn't be letting him slide. That's fair enough. Um, Fortunately, mm. it seems he doesn't have to deal with that. No, I was just—I actually didn't even know. I didn't even know that was a thing. To be honest, I was just sort of processing that. I mean, the training took me about an hour to do. So, mm, little diversity training. <laughs> There's far worse in there. Yeah, I've probably got a story to tell you about diversity training, but it's not. I don't think it's one for one for the one for the recording. No, we'll save that for uh, the recruitment podcast with Sean. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we get this thing. I think. It's it's a conscious choice from the director that it, everyone in the room is this kind of chest out, posture up men, and they bring her in and they're kind of grilling her in the front lot. Like, you don't know that, and as she points out, well, it's not in his file. I've got no reason to know that. Yeah, yeah. And then as we see throughout the film, they're kind of preying on her naivety as things go on, and her want to make a difference. Oh yeah, yeah. That I mean that's that basically folds into become the 
the whole center of the film, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's done. It is like you say. It is done really well. It's set up well in the beginning. It comes on and he just almost like drip feeds you a little bit here, a little bit there, didn't they? Until you get you get your your, yeah. your big reveal. And a big thing with this, when you look at some of the criticism of the film being particularly dark, and we referenced a man's wife and kids being killed at the dinner table in front of him. Yeah. The interrogation scene was a big thing when this came out. And it was a big like thing. They always when, are, though. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It was a big thing when Zero Dark Thirty came out. It was a big thing when Casino Royale came out. And unfortunately, I mean, I'm not sure how common the Casino Royale torture method is. But when it comes to Zero Dark Thirty, I, I don't know if there was complaints when Safe House came out or if we just let Denzel slide. Mm-hmm. Um, these things are supposed to be uncomfortable. Yes. And the way they do this one is it's almost, we aren't actually going to show you what happens because whatever you can think of in your mind is probably darker than what we can show you on screen. They bring in, he's got this kind of water that he brings in and you're expecting, I mean, some simple old uh, waterboarding, which wouldn't have been pleasant for him regardless. But the fact that they show this shot of the drain afterwards with no water going down there, you can look online and everyone has their own theories as to what Alejandro does to him. I will say, I read for the first time about this torture where essentially you're just force-fed, it's force-drank, is that a thing? Yeah. You basically have like water just forced down you until your stomach expands to a point that it can't take it anymore. Yeah. You spew and then they just start the process again. Yeah. Who the hell comes up with this stuff? You tilt the head back so you can't go anywhere else and it fills, basically it starts to fill like your nasal passage and stuff. And then it's another way of just obstructing it almost like if I'm pouring water out, into you constantly and you've got to swallow it or choke like it may, after a while it'll feel like you can't breathe jesus and i mean there's some that's that believe he uh sexually assaults him there's all sorts of these things but the director has been asked about it and basically said whatever torture you think happened happened and that's a fairly common director's thing isn't it yeah i, I- I think it's an easy one to play to people's interpretation, and especially if you want to make if you want to make a film seem dark, let the person watching make it as dark as they imagine it to be, and then you and can you, you can spring you can it then obviously their take from the rest of the film is influenced by their own mind, and it kind of fits in with everything else that we see in Sicario, doesn't it? Where it doesn't do things the easy way, it doesn't do things in the classic way we would see with a lot of these cartel films in not even falling into tradition, but just being as in your face as possible and saying, look how bad this is. Yeah. And so it does stack up for what should probably be the darkest moment of the film for them to really pull that back and say, it's as dark as you want to make it. It's a clever directorial choice. I think it helps it to stand out. And as we've said, the criticisms that there had been previously, if there were going to be any for this one, they can say... It's in your mind. We didn't show you anything. Exactly. We we, we led you there, but you made the, you made your own assumptions, made your own decisions. And it's quite crazy how how um, unnerving whistling can be in films, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Always think of the wire. Yeah, 
Yeah, that was very cool. That one. This this one. Like, I don't want to hear Josh Bro- Josh Brolin whistling while I'm tied to a chair, mm. and I said I certainly don't want to see. <laughs> I realize the point I'm about to make. If someone's going to torture me, I probably don't want them walking in looking like Benicio del Toro because that just looks like I'm in for a rougher time than I was even expecting here. Somehow it looks like he, he you're, you're he's going to enjoy it and you're not. Yeah, like we did American Pie last week, and I think when they're asking about what makes Stifler's mum so hot, and he's like, "Well, she's a male; she just knows things." Yeah, Benicio del Toro. In the only comparison he's going to get to Stifler's mum, he looks like he knows things. Yeah, seen a seen a few things. <laughs> Can tell you a few things. And still, maybe the worst thing he may do is he dishes out a wet willy from hell <laughs> <laughs> later in the film. There's a point in, I think it was a film, Only God Forgives, and I've referenced it on here before, mm. only for how bad it is, to Ryan Gosling one where he says about 17 words. Yeah. And I'm sure it's this one where there's this guy and they're going to torture him and they basically put these long, uh, thin, almost like metal straws Yeah. With that are sharpened on the end and he basically, they're pushed slowly into this, guy's ears from either side uh, yeah and there's just something rambling a bit here we've spoken before about uh being able to to relate to some of these things and so something like saw sometimes when you can imagine cutting your arm because everyone's felt like a paper cut or whatever yeah and that's a, obviously a more drastic version just something that you can relate to more than some extravagant like we're going to put you in a blender and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Something like someone just sticking their finger as deep in your ear as they possibly can just makes you squirm so much more than something far more complex could have done here. And it's maybe as much as I squirmed in the whole film. Yeah. No, it's a fair, it's a fair point. The ears are a dodgy one though, aren't they? Because like, it, it might... Ears and eyes. Yeah, it linked directly to the brain. Yeah. And they're close yeah. in proximity. And that's what, with the ear and stuff, it, it freaks you out. And you've got this comment from Matt's just before, where he says, you know what the beauty is of you being so beat to a pulp? No one's going to notice a few more scratches. <laughs> it's a very true statement, isn't it? That, that whole thing, does Kaluuya get off a bit easy for essentially linking up his partner with her future attempted assassin. Uh, he's not to know, is he? But he, he feels bad, but I feel like, I don't know how bad you should feel in that instance, but I don't think you should be able to chat about it the next day. Well, you say your apologies, you've got to move on, haven't you? Ultimately, she was charmed by Berntar. Yep, Easy. easily done. Alejandro does seem to suggest that it wasn't necessarily going to be that bad if she hadn't realised the wristband and pulled her gun out. So look, maybe there's an argument to say he was just reacting to the threat. Or maybe on the other hand, he was put up to it by a cartel kingpin. And I, feel like it I, feel I, I feel like it was going to be bad no matter what, mate, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I like... Um, 
that's one of them where there's something in it for him. He has a good little dance beforehand. He has a fun evening. He has a steak dinner out. And then it's, oh, at the end of the night, he realises what he's, what he's got to do. Yeah. And I don't mean going for Emily Blunt. I mean, what after that? Yeah. I, I, he's, he's now, uh, now, now, now got to get back on the job. Yeah, you're mixed business. He's mixed business for pleasure. This is why you don't do it. Yeah, that's what they always say. And at the, at the end, when um, he's pleading with Matt and Alejandro, and he's going, look, I may have taken things a bit too far. I got in too deep. Like they're going to go, well, you know what? It happens. Yeah. We We've been there. Yeah. Go on. We'll walk it back a couple of paces, mate. You'll be all right. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like however bad prison was going to be for him, snitching on his bosses probably didn't make that any better. You've probably just got to take what they're dishing out because mm. there's no way you're getting out of it regardless. Yeah, it's one of these things in films. Joyce, like there, if you if you tell like if you tell us we won't kill you thing. Like you see that it's in all sorts of films. I feel like you you're gonna die anyway, so like just, <laughs> yeah. just 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 do what you gotta do. Um okay, the criticism of this film before we just talk about the ending. So I I've got down here that the in, the introduction and everything is so well done. It's so intense. It's so brilliant. And it just sets the bar so high that from there you're waiting for this film to kick on. And I would compare it to Heat, which I watched again as I text you on Tuesday night. Mm. And I think there's a lot of similarities in the way some of the action scenes are built up in Heat. Yeah. But the thing that Heat masters so brilliantly is you sit through, and I don't mean sit through like you're enduring these scenes, but anytime there's a lull in the action in Heat, there's enough of an indication from prior that you're going to get something in a minute. Yeah. And Heat never feels like it slows down to the point where it's coming to a stop. And I think... It's very much intentional with Sicario, but it, whether it loses its way, Kate asks the whole way through this film, what's the mission plan? What's our objective? Yeah. And like, I never knew where the climax of the movie was going to be. And that's kind of how it feels when it gets to the conclusion is I've got no... I've got no person to cling on to in Taylor Sheridan's script. He doesn't really develop a protagonist. Kate is on the outskirts intentionally. We aren't supposed to relate to Alejandro. He's supposed to be this kind of guy that, do we like him, do we not? But we're just intrigued by him. Matt, he's very unlikable, Brolin's character. I don't think you're supposed to like him at all. But him and Alejandro are so clearly in charge of what's happening that Kate is never the one leading the dance. Yeah. And so you get this sense of confusion at the core of the film in that you've got this horrible world that they're living in, but you've got this lack of like leader to get behind and root for and see where it's going. And so I think once you've hit the high, you're waiting for a character to kind of grab it by the scruff of the neck. And as with the point of the film, they aren't able to. The... The film doesn't have the kind of punch that the best thrillers do, at least maybe not the final act when the tables are turned, but 
it's supposed to be convoluted and I just feel we can maybe get caught in the middle. I was just left the first time around and less so the second time around, but I was left feeling a bit like I didn't get an ending. I didn't yeah, ever get anything it, conclusive it, because it, I didn't get it, the payoff. Is that it sort of thing? Yeah. I, I may run the risk of sounding like you, but I, I do think part of that is intentional because it's absolutely intentional. It, yeah, it, it, it's it's all supposed to be. This is another day. This is this is the real world. This is this is what this is like. And it's the same as be them always being led by actions, led by others, and led by actions rather than, like you say, someone someone really taking a direction to it. And that's what it's for. It's that's what I think it's for. It's just to be. This is another day. Because they say, don't they? Um, this shit's not even going to make the papers. Exactly. After after the thing on the border. Yeah, unless it's mass unless it's mass mass casualties, it's just another day on it. And so, yeah, as as you just said, there, that's kind of the the point, isn't it? That um, there isn't really a conclusion because they've got no closer, yeah, to settling this war than they were at the start of it. Kate realizes by the end of the film, it it was all for nothing. Like she didn't accomplish anything really, yeah, in comparison to what she thought when she signs on. She's promised. There's there's this big bad guy. And do you want to take out this bad guy, the guy who's behind all of this? And then as it slowly unfolds, it's there isn't one of these bad guys. There's 50, 100, 500 of these bad guys that you're never going to take out because their hands are tied in terms of getting to them. Yeah. And everyone's trying to accomplish different things. And you've not seen Ozark, have you? No. There's a thing they drive home in Ozark as a theme throughout that basically is in the real world the good guy doesn't always win. Yeah. And I think that's what they're really trying to get home here. And I think they did, we'll maybe speak about the sequel another time, but I think they did have plans to have this kind of Sicario world Yeah, that they could really dig into. And we went and saw the second together. So mm. clearly we weren't dissatisfied enough from the first one that we didn't want to see the second. Yeah. Um, but I think here it's basically to show you these these guys are insignificant in the long run and it's more about everyone's own personal journey than it is accomplishing anything on the grandest scale yeah well it's just so it's yeah the scale of it is is the important thing and it's just it's almost like the the tail like cutting off the tail off the snake and yeah do you find now more sometimes you can finish a film more than you would when you were younger and you maybe reflect on it after and this is one of those films where I think it doesn't really sink in how you feel about it until even like 24, 48 hours later when you can outside of the moment say that was actually intentional from them. They didn't. Well, the first time I saw it, I thought you kind of built this up the whole way for me and then I didn't get the payoff I wanted. And then upon reflection, it's like, no, that was actually the point the whole way through and that's part of the art that they're trying to project. Yeah, you, you. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I, you just think a little bit more deeply about things, don't you, as you get older? Yeah. Um. So the big thing, the big overriding message is that everything is not as it seems. We get the reveal after they've gone through the tunnel. Alejandro says, "Don't you ever point a gun at me again." Bang, bang, twice in Kate's chest. Yeah. 
And after she lands a haymaker on Matt, he says, Medine refers to a time when one group controlled every aspect of the drug trade, providing a measure of order that we could control. And until somebody finds a way to convince 20% of the population to stop snorting and smoking that shit, order's the best we can hope for. And what you saw up there was Alejandra working toward returning that order. Yeah. She says, Alejandra works for the fucking Colombian cartel. And he said he works for the competition. Alejandra works for anyone or point him towards the people who made him, us, them, anyone who turned him loose so he can get the person that cut off his wife's head and threw his daughter into a vat of acid. Those are the people we're dealing with. And in that moment, I think this does set up the closest to a finale that we get and we realise the whole time this is why he is who he is. And I yeah. wouldn't say it's a twist because it doesn't, it's not like... It doesn't, we didn't, change, it's, doesn't change the path no, or anything, does it? But it just provides us a greater sense of perspective yeah. as to this is why this guy is who he is. And anytime you hear that in a film... You can tell us with a minute left that one of the characters has had his wife and daughter murdered. And for that 60 seconds remaining of the film, we hope to see the people that did it killed at his hands. Yeah. And so I think they do this to show... I think there's a big thing that you see the family at the table having dinner, like they're just ordinary people. Yeah. The fact that the wife and the sons are crying mm. and it's okay, but you're happy to sit at this table with this man who arranges for this to happen to someone else every single night. Yeah. So you, you don't deserve to cry in this moment. Look at what he did to my family. Yeah. And then the payoff, the payoff of not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to make you have the feeling of what you put me through first. And if anything, he's quite merciful in the way that he does do it. Yeah, there's no acid bath involved, is there? No. I cut off his wife's head, he says. Uh, And just this little recon mission of him going through the tension they have actually with the policeman, who we know is a corrupt guy. We shouldn't have any sympathy for him. And yet we realise that this is his son that we've seen the whole way through the film asking him to play football. Yeah. And he's taken out just as a spare part. He gets shot through because he's in the grand scheme of things, you're worthless when it comes to me. And then he goes through, everyone taken out. You've got the cool moment where he hears in his ear that there's six people in the house. He takes out one, he sees the maid, and then he realises there's no ops left. Like It's just a family at the dinner table and he just drops his shoulders, walks calmly up, takes a seat. It's all brilliantly shot. Sorry to keep rambling on. There's there's a moment just before they're entering the tunnel at sunset that is just beautiful. And it's one of the best shots I can remember seeing in so long. I mentioned his name earlier, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer who did Shawshank as well. Yeah. And it's so good. And I've watched six or seven of the little 30-second trailers for this film earlier. And you, you can bet that this one shot is included in every single one of them. Yeah, it's so good. And the character of Alejandro is just, well, he's just brilliant. Yeah, he is, yeah. Do you you think we needed that little tangent of him having his kind of revenge mission 
because if you're not going to get really a payoff for Matt or Kate, you did need something. You need to tie up some of the loose ends, mate, yeah. Yeah. I think they leaped, obviously, like you said, I think a lot of it is they knew there was always the intent for them to do more than more than one. Um, and you can, you can try and expand from there. And then, obviously, it gives them the option as to who they expand on. But it is... They, I think you do need something to 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 res to to resolve one of. The Brolin says they are definitely going to do the third, but they aren't doing it unless they've got everyone free. He's not doing it without everyone on board, and so and they, he wants Emily Blunt back for the third as well. I'd I'd, I'd watch the third. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was not worried, but my thoughts whenever anyone's asked me about this. And you said similar. So it was all right, but yeah. I felt quite unsatisfied by the ending. And the comparison I would make, which is incredibly disrespectful now. Did you ever watch the Bourne spin-off with Jeremy Renner? Yeah. And when I watched that film, there's the moment where he kind of gets on the boat, I think it is, at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, okay, now we're starting to get good. And then the film ended. And I was like, what? <laughs> this isn't satisfying at all. Yeah, and I would have put them in the same bracket, but they they do not deserve to be in the same bracket. <laughs> yeah, you you hear masterpiece said a lot, and I think this is on the outskirts of that. But I also don't think I don't think it would be spoken about in the same breath if it did have your uh, traditional ending. And so I think that is really what makes it this kind of standoff that we get. Well, not even a standoff. This uh, meeting of minds that we get with Kate and Alejandro, the two polar opposites by the end of the film, is so good. It is, yeah. And this the, that last 30 minutes, I think, is one that you could just watch on repeat where them going down the tunnel, getting out, killing the family, and then this this conversation at the end and it's the closest I think it gets to the early scenes with uh, the border crossing Alejandro's last lines of the film you should move to a small town where the rule of law still exists you will not survive here you are not a wolf and this is the land of wolves now if I could see that edited with him dropping a mic at the end of that and any time someone has a gun pointed at them in a film and they just don't even look startled at all because they just know you ain't doing that to me is just one of the coolest things you can have and it says a lot about her character and his character. Fantastic way to sign off. This is as enthusiastic as I've been about a film uh, for weeks on this podcast and I'm glad I gave it the rewatch. Nice. I'm glad. Did it meet your expectations from the first time around did it improve on them or did you think less of it no it matter it was i sort of got exactly what i was expecting to get out of it on that note then let's move on to our second film of the day the power can seduce you the rush can excite you. The temptation can blind you. I 
I'd made $60 million and I was out clean. Well, maybe I jumped the gun on clean. Low rated R. Whatever we say about this film now, fantastic soundtrack. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> Blow, the story of how George Jung, along with the Medellin cartel headed by Pablo Escobar, established the American cocaine market in the 1970s in the United States. What do you think the critics thought of this? Uh, Not great. <laughs> Although Depp has little range, he's acceptable in the lead, a source of calm and emotional steadiness which contrasts the nervousness and paranoia of his associates. The first half of Blow is a shallow but lively fun ride. The audience gets a contact high, but when George's fortune starts to go from bad to worse, so does the movie. Does the movie make us care? Not really. And that's the movie's basic problem. Jeez. Comes off like a flamboyant cartoon. Another film about the deglamorization of glamorous people living it up in the glamorous world of drugs. And finally, Johnny Depp stars and despite some pretty awful makeup, nails his performance as George Jung. Something we've done for a lot of uh, Depp films, actually, in this bracket. Do you think they've been kind to George Jung? Do you think it's a fair one? Or do you think they've been kind to Johnny Depp? Well, they certainly haven't been kind to John- Johnny Depp, have they? <laughs> I can't all ask the questions. Yeah, he's another one. George Jung gets a little... Get something out of this, doesn't he? Yeah. There isn't much trivia for this, or... Take you through it as we go. So to prepare for the role, Johnny Depp interviewed the real George Jung in prison. If I ask you first, do you like the film? Do you dislike the film? How do you feel about it? It's okay. Um, it's one of a number of films, isn't it? It's like the, the, it, I don't know. There seems to be just be quite a few films about drug dealers and real life drug dealers, and it's all rise and fall, and you sort of. You, you get what you get, don't you? Yeah, we, we've already done Mr. Nice, and I felt like... I prefer Mr. Nice to this. I, I felt know. like I'd already said, <laughs> you could have shown me one and not yeah. both. Something, I wasn't a fan of it. I think it made it worse by the fact that I was watching it after Sicario, which, as has just come across, hard one to beat. Mm. There's something here, and I wonder what you think, so... As I said, Johnny Depp interviewed him in prison. Do you think they were overly sympathetic to the character here? Like, the filmmaker and Depp, they both speak on the special feature of the DVD about just how much research they did, just how much they spoke to him in preparation for the film. And this went back years. And so I've got to think, if you develop a genuine relationship it's probably much more difficult to go after someone's flaws. Yeah, it, it is, and it makes. I mean, a lot of a lot of this and a lot of the plot points are just about him being a dickhead, and I don't mean that as like a bad person, just like well, that's actual stupidity. But like, we we all saw people at school who would constantly misbehave, and they would act like they've been really hard done by after. Yeah. 
And maybe their parents say, oh, I think he's, he must be being hard to my life. He's not this bad. I know, I know he doesn't misbehave this bad. And it's kind of like at some point, as you've just said there, we stop having sympathy for you. And I think that's where the film really kind of takes a downward path is it gets to a point where it's like, we just know you're going to fuck up again. And that is obviously the character. Yeah. But you then you you kind of need some characters around them to give you some feeling. And we will speak about the other characters in just a second. Um, a lot of Johnny Depp's dialogue was improvised and he felt that he could do that because of the amount of time that he'd spent with John. Mm. And they've got all of these little in-jokes in the film. Like they've got the one with uh, Ray Liotta where he says that he's in construction, like he says in Goodfellas. And you've got yeah. this one from Johnny Depp where he's asked where he's going to put all of his money from selling Coke. And he says, we're going to need a bigger boat, yeah. quoting Jaws. It, it feels like such an unserious production. Yes, it does. The real George Young, they reference it at the end of the film, was released from prison June 2nd, 2014 to reside in the San Francisco halfway house. Um, he got out early for testifying against his co-conspirators. Mm. Fair game after they turned on him? I think so, don't you? Yeah. I thought if four of them tried to grass him up more than one. Fucking <laughs> hell. Um According to the director's commentary, the tape that George leaves for his father near the end of the movie is a verbatim transcript of a tape that the real George recorded under similar circumstances. Mm. And this was based on Bruce Porter's 1993 book, Blow, How a Small Town Boy Made $100 million with the Medine Cocaine Cartel and Lost It All. Yeah. A couple of bits on the casting. So Rachel Griffiths, who plays Ermine Jung, George's mother... Yeah. He's actually five years younger than Johnny Depp. <laughs> so. And I know he looks worse for wear these days. I don't want to upset the Johnny Depp fan club that's definitely out there, but he has always looked probably post uh, Donnie Brasco. Like he's had a tough paper round at times, and I don't yeah. think they do him any favours in this. No, but I imagine a lot of that's just the, the drink and the drugs, mate. Yeah. Um, I often refer to friend of friends of the pod. Um, if we were to say the opposite here, John Leguizamo Your was guy. offered a role in this film, but turned <laughs> it down because he was already working on Moulin Rouge. Your, your boy. Def- <laughs> Go on. No, I was just going to say, your boy always makes me laugh. <laughs> he was definitely going to be a henchman in the cartel, wasn't he? Yeah, I don't think I'm not sure he would have had too much of a bigger role. Maybe he'd have played. Maybe he would have played Delgado. Yeah. I, the guy that stood out for me this whole film was Ray Liotta, mm. and that's not just we're not doing the thing of suddenly you say someone's got the best discography ever because they've died. Yeah. I thought he was great in this. I think. His character is the only is the only one I, I felt I really cared about, other than his daughter, and that's just a classic thing of it could have been anyone there. Yeah. When it, whenever someone starts making a promise to kids, you just know how it's going to go. Yeah. But Ray Liotta in here, he provides the heart for the film. You've got 
it's uh, I can't think of the right word. I'm going to say imagery, but that's wrong. You've got these side-by-side narratives of George constantly saying that his daughter is his heart and his motivation, and then George's father is what gives him his motivation from watching his struggle. And he continually tries to guide his son, loving him even when his words of wisdom get rejected. And by the end of the film, he says, it's not even worth me saying this, is it? And really, I think a lot of it, you don't actually feel sorry for George. You actually feel sorry for what his dad's going through as the film goes on, particularly when at the climax of the film, he's sick and he's listening to his son's last recording to him. He's got a similar role to Christopher Walken in Catch Me If You Can. Like the fathers that are proud of their sons for their incredible success, but they're very concerned about how that success was obtained. And there's a quote he has where he says, you could have been great at anything, Georgie, so why do this? And they really try and make you feel bad for Jung at the end when his daughter isn't visiting him despite the fact it's not something of in other films where usually you'd have this promise made it would be through no fault of the character yeah. where unfortunately they don't get to meet with their daughter on, on time Yeah, they go to help out a friend and they're dragged into something and they can they plead and say it's not my fault and the daughter says no you broke your promise this one like it's entirely his fault he can yeah, use yeah. the excuse of whatever it is that he wants and so I feel like you've got far more sympathy for his dad the whole way through the film, more than you have for him. And it's probably not a great place to be in when uh, for the two hours, Depp is on screen for almost all of it. Yeah, exactly. But it, I, I do think that's, that's part, I just think that's part of it, mate. And that's part of the life story. It is all, like, it is all choices. He's not. You know, he's never coerced into anything, really, is he? He's never forced to do anything. He starts knocking out a bit of weed because he wants the money. You tell him he couldn't move to California and get a job. Yeah, exactly. Right, and then it's well, they say, don't they? Something like um, when he's in the prison, they say, "Who's going to employ me? I'm a criminal." Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. But he's beca- you've become a criminal at that point of your own volition, my friend. Yeah. Well, if we were to compare it to other kind of gangster films. Mm. Usually, there's a couple of different ways you can go about it. And I think this one tried to just kind of cash in on a, on a formula. Yeah. And you, you would get this with teen comedies. And they would do this in the early 2000s. And everyone would try and just formulaically create a stifler. And then you would get it where, like I guess even Project X, you can quite clearly see you've got the fat kid, the skinny kid, the nerdy kid. And these are who we're going to base it off after Superbad. Yeah, and I feel like with this and there's far greater films that have tried to do the same thing they tried to do that and rather than have their own say on it but what you really need is a specific point to kind of drive behind so like Wolf of Wall Street you've got this guy who you need him to be somewhat charming because you can't just hate your main character but really what you're supposed to despise is the system that has made this successful scumbag into a hero. And I guess you can maybe get that like American Gangster as well. 
or you get it with something like Goodfellas, where they're kind of these middling crooks who work their way up to the height, and what you're really invested in, usually if they're not as charming as Liotta and Pesci, is I'm buying these tickets because I want to see you get as high as you can and then go as low as you can go. Yeah. I don't think it really ticks any of these pockets like American Dream, highs and lows. This, like, we don't really know how we're supposed to feel about junk because it's not like, okay, I was in a tough position. I had to raise this money to hell or high water. I've got to go to the bank to save the house that's been in my family for years and keep the roof over my kids' heads. This is like a guy who basically can't be bothered to get a job, says it'd be easier for me to sell some weed. Mm-hmm. And even then, what's he made? Like three, he's made uh, three million, I think it is, or something like that, or 300,000. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's not enough. I have to carry on. I have to keep going. Yep. And you can do it. And Johnny Depp can clearly do it because in Donnie Brasco, he gives you that middle ground where you're supposed to root for him as the good guy because he's the detective trying to put the scumbags in jail but he gets caught up in that world and then you're almost rooting for him to just be a success. And if you have the charming guys alongside, you get this kind of uh, tragic character in Lefty and that all works. In this, it's like, who are we rooting for? What are we doing here? And that in, in that vein, I think that's where it would be most similar to Mr. the Noise as a comparative film. Yeah, absolutely. I think I said um, all the same things. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's almost like I realise that they're if like if they're bio, like they're both obviously supposed to be autobiograph- autobiographical with some license taken. And obviously this comes out before Mr. Nice, but Mr. Nice I do prefer, but I think that's just it is what it is. But it's a very similar story. It's there's no there isn't that much of a motivation for you to start selling drugs. You start selling them, you find out you're pretty good at it, you keep selling drugs, you get caught. Then you find, talk about your, you take your own opinion on justice systems and rehabilitation, etc. Yeah. You come out of jail, you start selling drugs again. Well, he doesn't come across as an anti-hero, does he? He comes across as just comes across a scumbag a who has no business doing what he does. Uh, I, I don't know about scumbag, I was going to say, he just comes across as a bit of a drip, mate, to be honest. Like, there is some stupidity in there. Yes, the moment of sympathy, obviously, is when when, when Barbara's... Obviously, she's dying and stuff, but... Or when his mum snitches on him. Hey, look. His mum's got to do what she's got to do. Isn't it? Well, to be fair, and I thought about this yesterday, and I don't know why we were having this conversation when I was like 12 years old. But I can always remember my mum saying, I remember my brother saying once, I think we would have been watching something on TV where the killer or whatever, the criminal goes back home and says to their mum to hide them. Yeah. Mine would always say, I wouldn't be hiding you. You got yourself in that situation. And I think at one point she she would say, I'd call the police on you myself because you, sh- you shouldn't be doing that or whatever. Trash good parent. And, when you, know. and when you see it on screen you know. here, you're supposed to feel bad for him, aren't you? His dad gives him the look and goes, oh, Christ, like in the Ray Liotta voice. Mm. And he looks really dejected, like my own mum's. But then at the same time, all she's her reasoning of "you're embarrassing me when I go to the shops" isn't great. Yeah, there's no great morality in there. It's just my mates, my mates but, think you're a dickhead. 
the general thing of you're a bad person, I don't want to be associated with you. By the end of the film, you kind of see where she's coming from because it's... We'll almost always give someone a chance, won't we? Whether it's in film or in reality. Mm. As soon as you've had that chance and even more so when you've had that second chance we kind of as a people just go well then you deserve everything that comes to you you do yeah you do he gets more than two chances in this yeah exactly ample opportunity to do the right thing and like a lot of it's greed fair enough it's just very simple motivation to understand some of it is like i say actually just stupidity which is a simple motivation to understand because it can't really be helped Penelope Cruz won an award for the worst performance from an actress in the of the year. Um, fair enough. Doesn't get a lot, does she? Other than look how good looking I am, mm. and, and then look how mental I am. Yeah, so they, they aren't exactly not they're not exactly throwing her up for an Oscar, are they? No, what are they call the Razzies or the Razzles or something like that. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what she won. Okay, fair enough. Still won an award. Yeah, more than more than that one for this because this is a weird one where it was it was a commercial success, but I think the overriding no, I thing done about success, it, it, like it made what, money. What but, does it make? Like thirty, forty million on top over budget? Yeah, I suppose so. Back then, it was a different little bit of a different world, wasn't it? But I think the biggest issue is that most people almost don't have an opinion on it. No, I get that. Like there's some reviews out there. There was one I saw, and I it was a it was a Reddit thread, and someone said, "Why is this film not as successful as The Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas?" When I tell you this person was attacked, mm. and they basically say it's just as good. It follows oh. a similar formula of the kind of low level person working their way up and then yeah. caving in. But as we said. I care about Henry Hill. Yeah. I, I'm invested in Jordan Belfort. Yeah. Jung, by the end of it, look, I want you to get back on time and take your daughter to California. By the way, Emma, not a big ask. Like, no, Emma Roberts, by the way. That is her debut role. It is who, sorry? Emma Roberts. Oh, wow. Her first acting role. Hmm. Yeah, not much to ask, and still, even when he goes, oh, like you got me again. <laughs> yeah. My biggest issue and the point where I really checks out with the film is when he's shot in the chest and carries on his conversation like nothing has happened. <laughs> what the hell was going on there? Yeah, I. it's just... I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it couldn't have been, but there are part of me that think the guy's story could have been in, could have been a lot more interesting. I don't think that's part of what it comes down to. A lot of it is the characters just there's not a lot to get behind, but the story as it's told, it's not it's not that exciting, is it? You could is, you could forgive a lot if it was shot and it was played like as frantic that's the other thing about Goodfellas is for whilst it has its slower moments when it's when it's going and Wolf of Water actually when it's going it's going at a million miles an hour and it brings you back and I don't know it brings you right back into it and I, I don't I just don't think this ever does is, is as bad as we feel for anyone when 
the mum keeps walking out because the dad isn't earning enough money. And then, uh, what, like six-year-old George says, Dad, we're never going to be poor, are we? I feel yeah, like that's, that's as bad as I feel for anyone in the film. Yeah, yeah and that's the problem is that's essentially your opening scene, mate. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, like that is, that's you right from the start. And I, I think after that, you, you just I don't think you ever really get invested behind anyone. I know you say about the dad, but I mean, I was struggling even with that. I think it's because it was Rayleigh Otter, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> that was point. that was the main... I didn't know he was in the film. Some boy, really. And, I mean, the most the most I'm riding with George is when his mum comes back at Christmas and says, give me a hug. And he's looking at his dad like, I'm on your side here. Mm. She's an op. And he's going, <laughs> come on, give her a hug. And then he caves in. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I, I just think, don't know. You just don't, there's nothing really to get behind, mate. And like I say, the, the, it doesn't have those big seminal moments. Enough. Even when he's getting nicked, it's not like, the most exciting thing in the world, is it? No. Which, in a rest scene, armed coffers and stuff, it's it, very easy to turn into an entertaining scene. We've seen it in a thousand plus films. Yeah, then there's a couple we've... of them, to be fair, so it's like, <laughs> by the yeah. third one. No, I know, but no, none of none of them are like, oh, wow, like, like, how many films have we done in this bracket where someone's getting arrested? Yeah, and it's and like it's a big scene and stuff, and it, it, I don't know even that just sort of passes you by. Um, let's let's get into the judging just to close things out here. Okay, um, which film did you prefer, Sicario? I agree. Um, which did you think was more rewatchable, Sicario? Agreed. Uh, best moment slash scene. Uh, it's the shootout on the highway or at the border. Uh, best quote for me, it's the uh, Wolves quote uh, and the script. Yeah, I'll give you that. MVP. Alejandro. Yeah. Do you know what he lost his goals off? Uh, best side character. Um, now, would you give me Matt? Yeah, I, I'm. I think I'm going to go with Ray. I'm going to. I'm riding with Ray. Okay, I would take Brolin. Which one had you more on the edge of your seat? Sicario. Action per minute. Sicario. Best soundtrack. Glow. Agreed. Originality. Sicario. Bigger I feel impact. like we've used the word formulaic 17 times <laughs> talking about blow, we can't really then go that way. Bigger impact? Sicario. Best opening scene? Uh, also Sicario. Great. Best ending? Uh, yeah, it's also Sicario. And finally, best chemistry? Uh, Sicario. Yep. So that is 13-1 <laughs> for Sicario. Well, I think we saw that one coming. Yeah. Next week we have another film from Dennis Villeneuve in Prisoners up against Lethal Weapon. You've seen any of the Lethal Weapons? I have. I've seen the first one. Okay. Nice. Didn't like it the first time. Liked it the second time when I watched it last Christmas. Okay. So we'll get into that. Um, but until then, thank you for listening to another edition of Movie Madness. 
As I said, we'll be back next week. Adios. <laughs>